All right, let's turn back again to the text we just read a few moments ago, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And I want to draw your attention to verse number 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse number 3. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Our subject this evening is that last expression in verse 3, the simplicity that is in Christ. In this particular chapter, the Apostle Paul is continuing to expose the false teachers of the day. He is exposing teachers that had begun to infiltrate the churches, especially some of the churches there at Corinth. Those false teachers had begun to influence the bodies of those churches. Uh, They had begun to make some inroads into their false gospel, beginning to have an influence. It was beginning to affect the body of believers there. Paul makes reference to them actually preaching another gospel. This particular section in 2 Corinthians 11 reads very similar to Galatians chapter 1 when Paul warns about if someone comes with another gospel, if someone comes teaching you something that is not the true gospel, that they should be shunned. We should turn away from them. Paul uses very strong language. And again, we're not covering in an expositional manner every verse of this chapter tonight. We're really going to focus on the simplicity that is in Christ. But he called these false teachers, he called them false apostles. Now, one of the things that the Apostle Paul was continually dealing with was the authenticity of his apostleship. Paul would many times have to write and have to confirm that he was, in fact, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, that his apostleship was authentic, his apostleship was real, and he was not one of these false apostles. So in this particular chapter, Paul makes reference to some of these apostles. He calls them deceitful workers, and he even conveys the idea that they are ministers of Satan. It's interesting that in verse 14 or verse 13, he says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ, and no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Paul is not pulling any punches with this. Paul is saying these are ministers of Satan who are presenting themselves as ministers of light. So Paul in chapter 11 is primarily dealing with the reality of denouncing these false apostles and he feels it's necessary even at this stage to defend his apostleship and why he is a recognized apostle among the Corinthians. And he begins this section again by addressing the truths of which he stands upon. Notice he talks very clearly about the uh, where his stance is. In verse, in verse number two, he says, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ, which leads him into this great fear that he has. And notice he says, but I fear. Now, I don't think this was just a light discomfort with. I think he was truly fearful that they were going to be deceived into buying into this false narrative, this false gospel that was being propagated by the false apostles. He says, I fear that this is going to happen to you. 
Now, much of this chapter, as we were reading, especially towards the end of the chapter, you'll notice that Paul's ministry among the Corinthians, he calls to attention, not so that he can get their sympathy, but he calls to attention the sufferings that he endured for the cause of the gospel. He talks about how many times he was stoned, how many times he was beaten, how many times he dealt with shipwreck, how many times he was, he was uh, in peril. You'll notice in verse 26, he mentions in perils numerous times. He talks about being weary. He talks about being in pain. And he says, and above all that, he said, I have the responsibility to care for all the churches. Now, Paul's not doing this to make us feel sorry for him. I think Paul found it a great joy to suffer reproach for the cause of Christ. I don't think Paul was writing this with this idea of saying, listen, I, I want you to feel sorry for me. But he is showing us the importance of the gospel in which he's standing for. If a, man will, if a man will endure what this man endured, then the gospel must have something real and authentic to it. That he would endure what he endured for the cause of the gospel. So Paul is calling to attention his dedication to the gospel of Christ, and he uses his own sufferings in the service of Christ. I think there's really a key, two key things that Paul's talking about here. First of all, Paul is calling to our attention the sufficiency of the true gospel, first and foremost. Folks, the true gospel is sufficient. The true gospel of Jesus Christ is sufficient. It isn't lacking. It isn't needing anything added to it. It's not needing us to, to uh, reform it. It's not needing us to change it. Uh, it, is, it is truly sufficient because it is based upon a sufficient Savior, a sufficient Christ. So Paul wants us to see very carefully that there is the sufficiency of the true gospel, and that's what leads us to this phrase that he says, that the simplicity that is in Christ. Oftentimes, when we see the word simple, we immediately jump to our human terms. And we think about simple means easy. It means without really any opposition, without any trouble. Uh, most people, if they're given a choice between doing something that's simple or something that's hard, our natural instinct is to do something simple to avoid the hardness of that reality. The simplicity here is not about easy. Paul writes in this particular chapter that the, that the dedication to the service of the gospel is anything but easy. It's difficult. It's filled with peril. It's filled with trouble. That very last verse of that chapter, Paul made mention of the reality that he they were desiring to apprehend him and it was through a window he was let down by the wall and escaped. People wanted Paul dead because of the truth of the Gospel. Yet what he's drawing our attention to is this simplicity. The simplicity that is in Christ. What is this simplicity that is in Christ? Well, Paul answers this question really in the Scripture that we opened our service with in Colossians 3.11. The last verse we read said this, Christ is all and in all. Now from a simplistic standpoint, nothing can be simpler than that. Christ is all and in. Notice there's an is and there's an in. Christ is all. He is everything. There is nothing beyond him. There is nothing greater. There's nothing more. 
And not only is he all, he is in all. If Christ is all, folks, and here's, here's a conclusion we can draw already. If Christ is in all and is all, then it would be the pinnacle of foolishness to try to find happiness or satisfaction in anything else other than Jesus Christ. That's the simplicity of the message. If he is, in fact, in all and is all, then for us to look for him anywhere, look for that in anything else would be foolish. It would be folly. Now, you notice throughout the chapter as I was reading that Paul makes mention of boasting. And he makes mention of the boasting, and he even used the word folly. He, he used the word, verse number one, he said, Would to God that you'd bear with me a little in my folly and bear with me. I think Paul was so concerned about this coming off as him boasting in his heroics that he said, if you'll just grant me the liberty and bear with my folly. But he was not boasting in his works. He wasn't boasting in what he was doing. He was boasting in the simplicity and the fullness and the completeness that is in Christ Jesus. This simplicity, although this word seems easy, if Christ is and in all, then it would be, again, the pinnacle of foolishness to try to seek for happiness in anything else but Christ. And that would also include to try to find satisfaction in another gospel. He is in all. He is all. Paul was concerned that the, the church at Corinth's minds could be subtly deceived into leaving the simplicity that is in Christ into something or someone else that would not bring them satisfaction. Now, when he was worried about a church at Corinth, it's accurate to say that we could be concerned about the churches in 2022 today as well. Could our minds subtly be drawn away from the simplicity. Now notice again in verse 3, Paul says, But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve, or deceived Eve through his subtlety. Remember in the garden, it wasn't this flash-in-your-face deception that the serpent, that Satan, put in front of Eve. It was subtle. It was getting her to question Hath God really said? That's how it started. It was not something that would have been very clear to see and really in your face. That's what subtlety is. Folks, I don't believe that our church is per se under the danger of a very in-your-face false prophet or false apostle or false teacher coming in. But we have to be on guard on the reality that subtly... And over time, deception can take place. And if Paul was fearful for the church at Corinth, why would we be so prideful to think that that couldn't happen to us? Now, we sit here tonight and we, we have already sang hymns about the gospel. We have sang, we are saved by grace alone. Uh, we, we believe the solas. We, 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 are, we believe in these things. But what about the subtlety? If Satan dealt in subtleness with Eve, how do you think Satan and his demons work today? The exact same way. 
They transform themselves as ministers of light. No false prophet is going to come in and announce he's a false prophet. He's going to come in and he's going to present himself as a minister of light. He's going to carry a Bible like you carry. He's going to fit into the, he's going to fit into the congregation. He's not going to announce his presence and say, I'm here to destroy you. But if we're in the idea that we think that the devil and his demons are not at work trying to destroy every Bible preaching church who's standing for the gospel, we have got our heads buried deeply into the sand. And he comes back to the subtlety is going to corrupt the simplicity that is in Christ. Now, we're going to expound upon that thought deeper because this is really, I think, what the, the, the main theme of this entire chapter is, is this simplicity that's in Christ. It is the same temptation that the devil used in the garden that he will attempt to do even in our generation. That is the grand device of Satan, is his subtlety. That's... That's his craft. Satan works in deception. Deception is defined as that, is, that, is that which is most closely resembles the truth. If I want to deceive you, I'm going to speak truthful things. I'm going to talk with you in terms you will understand. I am going to use similar vernacular. I'm going to use similar vocabulary. But then I'm going to subtly introduce something into that conversation. That's where the alarm has to go off. I'm hearing Christ. I'm hearing Jesus. I'm hearing salvation. I'm hearing regeneration. I'm hearing all the same things. But then subtly there's something different about what I'm hearing. Folks, we have an obligation as believers in Christ to be on the... Look out for subtlety that is deception. Not just the pastor and elders of a church, but the entire congregation of a church is to look out for the reality of one of those false prophets, those false apostles who could very easily come in amongst us. Again, people often say, are you worried about this now? Is that why you're preaching on this? That's not the point at all. I would much rather, even in this case, if that was, I'd much rather preach on it before it ever happened than after it already is underway. But the reality is, is the devil is always going to try to corrupt the simplicity. Again, simplicity doesn't mean easy. Simplicity doesn't mean it's not hard. Even what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, we should never count that as simple. We should never count that as something that, was not, that wasn't difficult. But this is the grand device of Satan. It is his masterpiece. This is what every carnal, unawakened, unconverted man falls into. What does the unconverted man, before Christ saves him through the power of the Spirit, what does he believe about his own standing before God? He begins to imagine that there is something he can do to qualify himself to be made a partaker of God's grace. That's always the characteristic of an unregenerate man. He thinks there's still something he can do. Now, subtly, that's how this happens. The false prophet begins to weave in all of those gracious movings of God 
but then begins to subtly tell you, but there's something you have to do. It appeals to the flesh. It appeals to the carnal side. It appeals to the unregenerate man because the unregenerate man says, this sounds legitimate. This sounds right. It sounds logical that in order for me to experience the greatness of this God, then I must certainly be responsible with doing something or God can't possibly accept me. But the reality is, is what Paul was talking about here is Paul, as he's talking about this simplicity, he's reminding us that this fact alone to try to appeal to our flesh that there's something for us to do to qualify ourselves to be made a partakers of grace is going to feed one of our greatest problems. And that's our pride. Our pride is still our biggest problem. Because pride is the very thing that says, there's something more I need to do. We see examples in Scripture where if we're not careful, we will take that to mean that this is something I need to do. I need to add to my salvation, or I need to do these works. I need to multiply my talents or my treasures. Realizing that these things are not those things which are justifying us before God. These are things that are the outflow of true saving faith. But they're not adding to anything. Paul says, I fear. I fear that the simplicity that is in Christ. Well, what is this simplicity? The simplicity is the reality that Jesus Christ has in fact paid it all and he is all and he is in all. One of the subtle tricks that the devil used in the garden about why God did not want them to eat of the tree, he used this term, ye shall be God's. Now, that doesn't seem subtle. <laughs> that seems like a, that's right in your face type of thing. How did they not recognize that? How did Eve not recognize you shall be gods? The devil was appealing to the pride of man. Subtlety by the devil often appeals to the pride of man. The false apostle, the false witness, is going to appeal to the value of you and the value of what you add to God. Folks, we can pretty easily identify, I hope we can, and if, if this is not something that you're very good at, we can identify many false denominations like if I was to rattle off some, we would say, well, I know that they have a false basis. They have a false belief system and we can easily see it. It's the subtle, small differences that are so important. And I'm telling you, every church that's gone the wrong direction started with a subtle difference. It wasn't someone coming in and saying, let's change the name on the sign. Something subtly came in and was allowed to change just enough the people were deceived and didn't even know it. Paul was afraid that the church at Corinth, it was going to happen to them. We understand that the devil in his subtlety 
desires to flatter the pride of our old nature. Our pride is directly opposite to Christ. It is his blood and his righteousness in which our salvation stands, not anything to do with us. The simplicity that is in Christ is the reality that all that salvation is, all that the gospel is, is in Jesus Christ only. Not Jesus Christ plus. It is Christ only. Paul, I believe many times throughout his writings, warns against ways of earning our salvation. A great example is Christ's parable in Matthew 25 about the parable of the talents. And that parable teaches us to use those abilities in our sanctification after we're saved, not as a means of saving us or securing our justification or our salvation. They are meant, it's part of our sanctification. Folks, you can very subtly, you can very subtly change the entire doctrine of a church if you just start messing with the terms justification and sanctification and just start mingling them just a little bit. You start calling things sanctification, they're actually justification, and you start calling things that are justification, sanctification, before you know it, you've got a works-based earn my salvation doctrine, and it will take hold quicker than anything because it's going to appeal to your pride. Lest we think that this will take a long time to do, it doesn't take long to feed the pride of man. A couple good pats on the back, and our pride and our ego... We're inflated. Doesn't take much. Paul was not just fearful. I think he was alarmed by what could happen. He was distressed by this. Again, he gives us a real example. Notice he says, I fear less by any means. If you think tonight that the false prophet or the devil is going to play fair with you, again, you've got your head in the sand. If you think the devil is even concerned about the rules, if you think the devil is concerned about whether he destroys a church or not, that would bring him great pleasure. It bring him great pleasure to destroy a body of believers that's standing for the truth and the simplicity that is in Christ. That would bring him great joy. Folks, there have been pastors who have been sounding this alarm since the days of Paul. There have been pastors who have stood up before congregations and they said it to the congregations, they warned about it was coming, and it still came. And sadly, sometimes it came to the pastors who were warning about the very subtlety and the deceptiveness of the devil. Sometimes it, it, was, it was woven into the congregation and the congregation decided the pastor and the elders and the leadership of this church, we just don't see eye to eye with them anymore. And they're removed. And there the deception takes hold. Folks, you read your church history and you go back and you look and study the first churches in this country. You look at what they were founded on. You look at how many churches in this nation were, were founded and were standing upon the doctrines in which we hold so dear here. Look at the ones that were standing for the doctrines of grace. Look at the ones who were standing for reformed theology. They were all over this country. 
But if you hear revisionist history, they will say, that's never been a part of the American backbone. It was some of the first founding churches stood on these doctrines. And those doctrines are now fading quickly away. We are now in the minority. And the easy solution is, is well, you guys are all wrong because you're the smallest and you're the fewest. Subtlety. Deception. It comes in. The serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety. So your mind, he ties it together, so your mind should be corrupted. Corrupted from what? From the simplicity that is in Christ. How blessed is it when we understand that our salvation is found in Christ and His sacrifice and His merits and His righteousness alone. How blessed is it that when the Holy Spirit awakened you to your sin, that the first thing the Spirit of God does is completely strips you of your pride and brings you down to nothing. That's why... When you're talking about the salvation of a soul, the Holy Spirit's not coming in there just kind of knocking quietly on your heart saying, will you let me in? Will you let me in? No, the Spirit of God, when He converts a soul, He strips that man, that woman, pride completely to the bone and says, I'm taking away anything that you think is leading to your salvation so that all you have left is me. Now, folks, some would say that's too harsh in our modern church age. Folks, that's the gospel that needs to be proclaimed. That the gospel, the true gospel of Jesus Christ, it is simple from the reality of where salvation is, but it strips a sinner, brings them down to nothing. It leaves us bare and open. It leaves us, as some of the old preachers used to say, it leaves us spiritually bankrupt. There are no zeros in the account. There, are no, there is no money in the account. There is no righteousness in the account. It is all the righteousness of Christ. When a person truly is brought to see the reality of their sin and their offense towards a holy, perfect, and righteous God, what it leaves that sinner feeling is a feeling of emptiness. Because without Christ, you have nothing. Folks, without Christ, you have nothing. Not just in this world, but the world to come. We are, we are surrounded by empty people. You work with empty people. You go to school with empty people who do not know the simplicity that is in Christ. And many, even some that are empty to this day, are doing everything they can to claw and fight and try to earn their way to heaven. And they're coming up at the end of their rope saying, I have nothing. What a joy it is when, as Paul made mention of his conversion testimony, and again, our conversion most likely didn't happen the way Paul's did. But Paul's conversion was quite a conversion. But what a glorious truth when he was stripped bare of all of the knowledge he had relied upon. All of what he banked on. 
I was the Hebrew of Hebrews. He said, I was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. If you wanted to know about the Bible, you would go to the Apostle Paul and talk to him, and yet he did not even know Christ as his Savior. He was stripped bare to where he had nothing. But when his eyes opened again three days later for Paul, couldn't see. His eyes are now open. His eyes are, he sees the reality of what he was. When the Spirit of God has made the sinner aware of his or her nothingness. Now again, it would be an awful doctrine if all God did was made you aware of your nothingness. Wouldn't that be horrible? If all it was was God says you're nothing. Amen. Have a great week. He has the answer to the other side. He says, you are nothing. That is true. But at the same time, he makes the sinner sensible of his nothingness. He makes him equally aware of Christ's sufficiency. So when you're brought to your nothingness, then you're made aware of, wait a minute. I'm not left alone. It is the fullness and the completeness and the sufficiency of Christ Jesus that I now have. That empty spot, that empty place is now, it's Christ. Man in his flesh brings nothing to Christ. But when Christ saves him, now he lives wholly upon Christ. He draws everything that he or she is from Christ. That's the simplicity. I now, because Christ is all and Christ is in all, I draw everything from him. All of my sufficiency. It is true. All of our righteousness, as the prophet Isaiah says, is as filthy rags. And we're not talking about a filthy rag that has a couple clean spots on it. We're talking about filthy rag that there is nothing good on that rag that gives you any acceptance with God. And yet, he takes this filthy, vile sinner and gives him complete sufficiency and fullness. I like the Apostle Paul makes mention, and even Christ himself talks about joy. That your joy may be full. When Jesus was speaking to his disciples hours before he would go to the cross, he wanted them to understand what was getting ready to happen. And he wanted them to rely, even when they didn't fully understand what was getting ready to happen. I love the fact that that term he said, it is expedient for you that I go away, but if I go away, I will not leave you alone. I will send the Comforter. Folks, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life, is the, it's the seal that we are in fact children of God and that our standing before a mighty God is complete and full in Christ. That is the simplicity. It is man who has complicated justification. 
Paul in his letters dealt with it over and over and over again. He had to keep reminding them, no matter how much of the law you can keep, it's not going to be enough. It's the simplicity in Christ. No matter how good of a life you live, it's the simplicity it's in Christ. Paul's greatest fear is that they would be deceived in moving away from that. The simplicity in Christ, Paul didn't just say, now once you get this conversion right, once you get saved, now you don't have to live a certain way. No, Paul would have said the exact opposite. He said this salvation and this presence of the Spirit also teaches us how to live by faith and how to live in this world. This present evil world. Paul's fear, sadly, to some of the churches I'm sure he ministered to, did come true. There were some that were beguiled. There were some that were deceived. There were some that were corrupted. Again, notice what Paul says. I fear that you, your minds, should be corrupted from the simplicity. What was going to move them away? It was these false apostles. And you'll notice with me, if you drop down to verses 10 and 11, Paul gives us the motivation of why he preached the simplicity. As the truth of Christ is in me. As the truth of Christ is in me. Paul is declaring from the very start of what he's getting ready to say here that he is speaking this from a position of knowing that his sufficiency, his satisfaction is in this very truth of the simplicity of Christ Jesus and his atonement and his saving work. But look what he says. As the truth of Christ is in me, no man shall stop me of boasting in the regions of Achaia. There were people that accuse Paul of just doing this for the notoriety. That Paul just wanted attention. And Paul said, no man, no man is going to stop me from boasting in this simplicity that's in Christ. And he says, wherefore, why are they not going to stop me? And he says that he asked the question, kind of teaching us that we already know what he's going to say. Because I love you not, No, the exact opposite. He says, God knows. God knows that the reason why I'm so passionate about this is because I love you. Folks, one of the greatest demonstrations of love is the truth. A person does not love you if they will not tell you the truth. I could not stand up before you or any man that stands behind this pulpit could not say to a congregation of people, no matter who they are, I love you, and then stand up there and lie to you. Those two cannot exist. Paul says, I say these things because I love you. I say these things because I don't want to see this happen. Paul not only loved them, but Paul loved the truth. In Ephesians 4.15, when he he wrote to the church at Ephesus, he says, but speaking the truth in love, 
he may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Paul's motivation was love. Love will prevent lies. Not that the lies can't come in, not that the lies can't be there. But a person will speak the truth if they truly love the people in which they're trying to protect and keep from this happening to. Paul was so serious about this that in verse 4 he says, For if he that cometh preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit which you have not received, or another gospel which you have not accepted, you might well bear with him. For I suppose I was not a whit behind the very chiefest apostles. But then Paul goes on and he begins to say, I have, been, I have not been hidden to you. I have not tried to hide anything to you. He said, I was manifest unto you exactly who I am, what I was. Folks, this simplicity that's in Christ Jesus, we can take heart by way of application tonight by understanding that believers are truly and fully complete in Christ. We are complete it is God who has given us wisdom. It is God who has given us His righteousness. It is God who is sanctifying. It is God who has redeemed us. Folks, Satan's one goal in this world is to corrupt the mind and to turn the heart away from the single-mindedness that's found in the simplicity of Christ. That is Satan's main goal, is to corrupt the mind. Now, parents, you need to understand that is what you are guarding against. And that is why you have got to be diligent about what your kids hear, what they see, what they learn. And I'm telling you, it might seem something small. It might seem insignificant. It may seem like it doesn't matter. And I'm telling you, you better be careful because Satan's main goal is to corrupt your child's mind. And it is happening all around you. They, in many cases, are not at the place where they can recognize this deception. Folks, if I could tell you how many parents, again, this may be for another time, but I'm going to share it with you anyway. How many parents are having discussions with their children about what their children should be allowed to do? Listen, if you're a child of God, you are the one who's been entrusted with the responsibility to teach your children what is right and what is wrong, and you prevent, don't have discussions about what they can and can't do. You're the parent. We think the devil's only concerned about certain people. No, he's going to corrupt the minds which are most easily persuadable. Some churches, the devil could walk right in and could deceive people and everybody would fall for it. One of the things that we prayed for very specifically years ago when we came here was that God would give the people of this church such a hunger and such a thirst for the Word of God that they would be seeking and searching for themselves so diligently and so deeply and folks, this is not a matter of pride for us, but I want you to understand, we are seeing that happen where you as families and people, you are, you are dying for the Word of God. And you are hungry for it. 
And I'm watching you teach your children. And I'm standing back in awe and I'm saying, God, this is exactly what we want to see happen. We want to see minds being centered and, and having a single minded and a single heart towards the things of God. These, this corruption. We are surrounded by corruption on every side. If, they, if the devil can move even our children away or move us as parents or grandparents away from the simplicity that is in Christ. Listen, the devil does not play fair and it doesn't matter to him what area he deceives you in. You understand what I'm saying? If he deceives you in the law, he's one. If he deceives you in morality, he's one. If he deceives you in tradition, in ceremony, or whatever it is, good or bad, if anything he's doing is setting the mind at odds or as a rival with the preeminence of Christ, you are dealing with falsehood. Right? That's, if it's taking away the finished work of Christ in any of those areas, it's deception. Would we recognize it in those areas? Would we recognize the devil deceiving in morality or in the law, tradition? If you think tradition's not a biggie in churches, there are people that are so hung up on tradition, they haven't seen Christ in decades. They are relying upon the tradition. Again, traditions of themselves may not be bad, but if that tradition is superseding the preeminence of Christ and the simplicity that's in Christ, that's got to be put away. Paul had a great fear that there would be preachers, false teachers who would come in and would teach that there would be a rival to Christ. Christ plus anything in redemption, in our justification, is not the gospel of God's grace. I'm going to turn to you quickly, but in, in Colossians 2, you don't have to turn there, verses 9 and 10, Paul made this very statement to the church at Colossae. He says in verse, Colossians 2, verse 9, For in Him, that's Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And ye are complete in Him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands and putting off the body of the sins by the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with Him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised Him from the dead." And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. And just so you can see Paul's consistency in using the word beguile, 
Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Deception is a common theme. Paul feared that this could in fact happen. That would be another gospel. Folks, the very foundation of the Great Reformation, the very foundation of the Scriptures, it didn't begin at the Reformation. Let's make very clear the doctrines that we hold so true today did not start during the Reformation. These doctrines were held by the Apostle Paul himself. We're not a follower of man. I hope we understand that. We are not following a man's philosophy. We're not following a man's opinion. We are following Jesus Christ and His Gospel. It's the same Gospel Paul stood for. It's the same Gospel Paul died for. It's the same Gospel that Paul suffered shipwreck and perils and stonings and beatings for because he knew this is what is the truth. It's the simplicity that Jesus Christ is all and He is in all. In Christ, believers are perfectly righteous before the Father. There's nothing left to add. We are complete in Him. Paul said, I fear that your minds may be corrupted. Folks, may our minds never even be close to being corrupted away and moved away from the simplicity that is in Christ. It's a glorious truth. And I hope above all else that you leave here tonight encouraged knowing Christ is all. Christ is in all. There is nothing I can add to it. The finished work of Christ, He's accomplished my salvation. What a beautiful picture that is. Let's finish singing tonight.